0: Well, good morning to each one this morning. Welcome again to the service here. I guess I feel a little bit out of my comfort zone up here, but I trust that God can use the words He's given me to speak to each of you. <clears throat> Why don't we start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you here this morning. Thank you for your presence that's been here with us the words that were shared and the songs we sang. Just thank you for being here. Pray you would guide me now as I speak the words you've given me. Just pray you give me wisdom, clarity of thought. Just pray that your spirit would continue to be in this place. Just pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, well, the subject I'd like to look at this morning is on our speech, in particular sound speech, I'd like to start with a couple of verses in Titus, Titus chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Titus chapter two um, verse verse eight. I'll just read one verse there. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. This is in context of just some admonitions that were given from Paul to Titus. And things that he was supposed to exhort the church in. To exhort them, specifically the young men, but I think it applies to any that are Christians. That we should have sound speech that cannot be condemned. Just like to look at this morning what is sound speech? What does the Bible say about it? And how do we know if we have sound speech? The thought of sound speech gives the idea of it being whole, in full health, and true. So if you think of our speech being healthy, being true, and being whole, not lacking anything. Speech that is true, of good and proper quantity, and of good quality. And I'd like to look at two main aspects of it, the quality of our speech and the quantity of our speech. The so first is thinking of the quantity of our speech, um, a couple verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes 10, uh, verse 14 is when I have in mind, but I might actually start reading back in verse 11. So, surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of the fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is is mischievous madness. A fool is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? So just that thought there, a fool is full of words. And thinking of sound speech and being whole, the right amount of speech, yet it seems there is a warning against having too much words. It says a fool's mouth is full of words. Or, yeah, a fool is full of words. It just gives the idea of someone that talks all the time, non-stop. And, I mean, obviously you can't talk when you're sleeping, but at least during their waking hours they're talking quite a bit. Then in Ecclesiastes 5, there's a couple of verses. I'll also speak to this. Ecclesiastes 5. Verses 2 and 3. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. I'm not quite sure what that all means. When it it says, God is in heaven, and we're on earth, which is fairly obvious. But somehow that realization is supposed to... um, Encourage us to have less words. Just the fact that God is up in heaven listening and we're on earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. And then also, there's some verses in Proverbs, Proverbs 17. While these are speaking to the same thing, referring to the quantity of our words. Proverbs 17, verse 27 and 28. He that hath knowledge spareth his words. And a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. So even someone that does not have a good reputation for being a very wise person, someone that maybe makes a lot of poor choices in life, even some like that is counted wise when they think twice about what they say, when they hold their peace. <clears throat> and it says, "And a man that hath knowledge spareth his words." And I know there are some people that I've met that are that way in life. They're not one to say a lot, and usually when they do say something, you can count on it. it's going to mean something. You can usually there's a nugget of truth in everything they say. It's sort of neat when you're around a person like that, you're just waiting to hear what they're going to say next, because they may be sitting there listening quietly to a conversation, and then they just have one little nugget they say, and it's usually not something empty or vain, it's usually of quality. And as a general rule, less quantity usually equals higher quality. So if someone is talking a lot, it's usually lower quality talk than someone that talks a little. I just had to look it up, how many words people actually talk. And it's sort of varied. Some people say men talk like 7,000 words a day and ladies might talk up to 20,000, but other studies said that's not really accurate. It's fairly uniform that a good average is about fifteen to 16,000 words a day for both men and women. Which I don't know how we are compared to average, but even at 15,000 words, that's a lot of words to keep track of to make sure they're all of good quality. <clears throat> and there's some people that say that in tracking how much they said in a day, it was close to 50,000, which
1: is a lot of talking. There's another verse in Psalms
2: I'd like to read. Psalm 139, verse
0: 4. This is David's testimony. He says, For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. That's just David realizing that God knows each word that we say. And if there's 15,000 of them, I don't think he has a problem keeping track of that many. Probably a lot easier for him than it is for us, actually. But words, in general, are a very necessary part of our lives, necessary part of communication. And even any good communication always has words spoken. You can't have good and wholesome communication without having some form of words. So it's not a wrong thing. It's not wrong to talk, it's a very good thing to talk, and there needs to be open communication. But the warning here in um, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs is that we don't talk too much, that our mouth is not full of words. As Proverbs says, that is not wise. Sound Sound speech is whole, of full health and true, and if someone doesn't talk at all, something is very wrong with that idea. It doesn't sound to me like full health as far as a healthy conversation. So it's not good to talk none at all. In Matthew 12, another verse I'd like to look at. Matthew 12, verse 36. He talks Well, before this, he talks about um, either make a tree good and his fruit good or the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. The tree is known by his fruits. And then he goes on to say, down in verse 36, "...but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified." And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Just seeing here that according to Christ's teaching, our words are what either justify us or condemn us. And just thinking of the soberness that should put on us and the carefulness that that should give us in choosing our words and choosing them wisely, knowing that by them we will be either justified or condemned by the things we have spoken. And talks about idle words and gives a fairly negative connotation there about idle words. The fact that we will give account thereof in the day of judgment. And, you know, just thinking of if someone gives you a task to do and says that at the end of this, you're going to give account for exactly what you did through this whole project or whatever it was we might be fairly careful about how we spend our time and how we use our resources because we know that they're going to be checking up on us to make sure we did it right. And that is how it is with our words that we will give account for every word we speak. And that should put a carefulness in us to be very careful about what we say. James also has a lot to say about the tongue, about our words, I'd like to turn there to James 1. As I was studying about the tongue and our words and our speech, It was amazing to me how many times this subject comes up throughout scriptures over and over again, referring to the things we say. James 1, verse 19, says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And then down in verse 26. It says, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. I'm just thinking of how, um, I don't know, how weighty those words are. Just thinking of an unbridled tongue can render our whole. Um, Christianity or a whole religious um, life can render it as vain, just having an unbridled tongue. Unbridled tongue is that with no restraint, no governor, no restrictions, just speaking everything that comes to mind. That is the definition of an unbridled tongue. And in that, in not having any governor or bridal or restrictions on what we say and how we say it, it can render our whole religion as vain. And when Christ enters into a man, the first thing, or one of the first things that changes is Christ bridles the tongue. And when he bridles the tongue, it is under control. It's controlled, it's slow to speak. As it said there in James, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That is evidence of a bridled tongue. There's no flare-ups, no lashing out, no vain babblings. It's been bridled. It's, the power of the tongue has, been, has become under Christ's control, and ready for his service. Over in James chapter 3, actually I might read this whole chapter of James 3, I think it all is in context of the tongue. Says my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bro- able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses mouths that they may obey us, and return about their whole body. Behold also the ships which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. Every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea, is tamed, And hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine figs, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is... There is confusion and every evil work, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So there's quite a few things to say about the tongue and about the power that is in the tongue there in verse 2 it talks about in many things we offend all and I think I'm just saying that in our walk of life as we go about life from day to day we go about our work and we go about our activities it's not uncommon or maybe it's nearly impossible to live life without somewhere giving some cause of offense to someone. It says that many things we offend all. And I realize that Christ gives us power to not be an offense to others, but in our weaknesses, men, we oftentimes do offend others. And it says, if any man offend not in a word, the same is a perfect man. And able also to bridle the whole body. And just thinking of how, that, how simple it is to define a perfect man It's someone that doesn't offend people with what he says, according to James here. So if that is the definition of a perfect man, then our job comes fairly easy to just make sure we don't offend people with what we say, and we're on the right track. It doesn't say that's all we have to do, but it does say once we have that one figured out, we're also able to bridle our whole body. It's just like as it talks about the ship there. When the rudder of a ship is under control and is steered by someone that knows what they're doing, the whole ship is under control. You know, Even though it's a massive ship carrying many tons of cargo or many people, whatever it's carrying, it doesn't take a very big rudder to guide that thing. And as long as the rudder is under control, the ship itself is under control, even though it be driven with fierce winds, as it talks about. And just like that, when our tongue is under control, our whole body is under control. And when our, when our body is under control, it's not necessarily just under our control, but it's under Christ's control. When Christ controls our tongue, He can control our whole body. As it says about the ship, whithersoever the governor listeth. And that's just a picture of wherever... The captain wants to steer that ship. That's where this ship goes. And if our tongues are the same way, where when we're when we have our tongues under control, that Christ can steer us wherever He wants to. That we are there. Um. Yeah, at His bidding, wherever He wants to steer us, despite fierce opposition or winds, Christ can turn us about wherever He wants, and as in that place of having our tongue un- under control that we are then ready for service to do his work just like a ship that is has no rudder is maybe the rudder is broken or out of control is of very little value because you can't steer it you can't get it to do any work for you a ship like that is just fairly useless if you can't control it And that's the same way it is for us. If our tongue is out of control, and our body is out of control because of it, then our acts of Christian service that we would love to do, we want God to show us where to serve, but if we're out of control, we can't really be of much useful service to God. So if we want to do His work, our tongue must be under His control. We'll come back here and go through a few more verses in James. But I want to read a couple of verses in Matthew before we do that. Matthew 15, this is um, after the the Pharisees. The Pharisees and scribes came and asked Jesus why his disciples don't wash their hands. And his reply was explained there in verse um, Matthew chapter 15, verse 16 or 15. I'll start reading 15. Then answered Peter and said to him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are you also without understanding? Do you not understand that whatsoever entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. that's just saying that whatever is in the heart, that is where our words are coming from. And I think that is why, it's almost like a rudder that can guide us, and that if our heart is speaking what's inside the heart, then our heart is just saying where or our words are just saying where our heart is actually leading us. And then back in James, in verse 5. It talks about the tongue being a little member and boasting great things. How great a a matter a little fire kinleth. And then it gives some very, I don't know, graphic um, illustrations or comparisons to the tongue. It says it's a fire. It says it's a world, a world of iniquity. It says it defileth the whole body. It says, it's set on fire of hell. It says, it's an unruly evil and full of deadly poison. And just thinking of that, I mean, it sounds like a fairly, um, a very, fairly powerful force to be reckoned with. If you think of all that fire can do, and even referring to it as a deadly poison and an unruly evil. Now, I like how it says it there in verse verse 8. It says, But the tongue can no man tame. And only Christ can tame the tongue. It's not something that we can just decide that we're going to stop offending people with what we say or we're going to start having wholesome speech. as it says, it is an unruly evil and... I think our own flesh gets in the way many times of our ambitions to try to change the way we talk and what we do. But only Christ can tame the tongue. And then down to verse 13, it talks about a wise man. Someone that is endued with knowledge. And I think it's saying that if you want to be a wise man, you should show out of a good conversation your works with meekness of wisdom. And just thinking of that in relation to the tongue, just thinking of someone whose words are with meekness of wisdom, it has the opposite idea of an unbridled tongue the idea of meekness and wisdom. And then in verse 14, it talks again about an unbridled tongue. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Now, it doesn't specifically mention the tongue, but it is still in context, I believe, with just having talked about the tongue. And then it talks about that. And I think it is true that where there is envying and strife and where there is um, other traits of an unbridled tongue, wherever that is present, there is confusion in every evil work, as it talks about. But then we can um, consider the wisdom that is from above in verse 17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make
2: peace. Just think of that as it relates to speech, pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy. I don't know, that's how, if I think of how I want people to talk to me, I mean, that describes it fairly well. I mean, it'd be great if everyone talked to me like that all the time, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, and just think, you know, if that's how I want to be talked to, that's how I should also
1: respond to others with meekness of wisdom. And it often through Proverbs it describes
2: um, even a couple of verses I read there how a wise man will ponder his words and the fool will just say everything in his heart
1: and how there's A fool's mouth a fool's mouth is full of words. So then comparing that
2: to wisdom of a wise person. The wisdom
1: that is from above is first pure and peaceable. Then we can fairly easily do a self check on how is our speech? Does it portray that heavenly wisdom? Is it peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy? And just the thought of some of those, like mercies, just
2: showing, showing mercy to others, not exacting everything that may be our right, not um, proving our point where we feel like we need to stand on.
1: Something less we have our feelings are just peaceable and full of mercy. And then without partiality, without partiality not
2: having any preference on whether we speak nice to some people and others we don't get along with, we speak with a little bit
1: less meekness or with less grace. I think it's very important that we show no partiality even in our speech. So I'm just thinking about the quality of what we do say.
2: The Bible does have quite a bit to say on that. Things that make good speech, things that are sound speech. In
1: First Peter Couple of verses I want to read there <clears throat> First Peter three we'll start reading in verse eight. First Peter three verse eight
2: finally be all of one mind, having compassion one of another love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous, not
1: rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but
2: contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good.
1: Let him seek peace and then sue it. So just the thought of refraining our tongue from evil and it says if we want um, if we
2: want to love life and see good days, we will do that. We will refrain our tongue from
1: evil. And our lips us speak no guile. Titus chapter
2: 3, this is again just looking at things the Bible says about what is sound speech, what is the right way to speak, which includes things that we shouldn't do and things that we should do. So it's not just all saying what we shouldn't do, but it also gives us um, examples of what we should do. Titus 3 verse 2, this one verse here says, To speak evil of no man, to be be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. That phrase there, to speak evil of no man, I guess, I don't know, that has come to my mind many times as I'm talking to others and I mention something about someone and then I think back on, like, was that gossiping? or Was that speaking evil of them? And I, just, I looked up the definition of this, to speak evil of no man. And the idea of speaking reproachfully or just to make others think less about someone or to um, to make them appear more evil than they
1: are or... Yeah, to speak them, And just considering for myself,
2: it seems like I mean we've we know that it's wrong to gossip, it's wrong to do that. But sometimes, you know, if you're talking with a good friend about someone that you both um, know, and sometimes it's easy to just make little comments here or there about that person, and it's
1: very damaging to relationships. How do we talk about others, the politicians
2: and others in the government, or even the policemen, or about our neighbors? We tell them, well, watch out for so and so. You don't want to get on his bad side. I don't think that's speaking well with them necessarily. I don't know that it's wrong to warn someone of the danger, but it automatically puts... Something in that other person's mind that you were talking to, a little bit of a lower opinion of that other person. And I think that would fall into the category
1: of speaking evil of them. And then just thinking about gossip as a whole. Saying things about others that we would be
2: ashamed of saying to them if they were there listening. And I know for myself, I think that happens more times than I might want to admit as I look back on my life and consider things I've said about people, even people in the church and people in the government and about <laughs> neighbors and about things. It's so easy to say things that are not um not or I don't know, just to tear the person down a little bit. There's another verse in James, chapter 4. And along the same lines, chapter, James 4, verse 11. So Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to say things about someone else, comparing it to ourselves. Like we might say something like, well, that person's just not a very good organizer. So I've I'm find that we're a better organizer than them. We're, and I think it's things like that that not only do not build relationships, but that is where that um, envy and strife comes in that talked about in James 3. I don't think it falls in the category of being... Um,
1: Merciful, without hypocrisy without partiality and there's yeah, there's very many ways we can make comments about others that just um,
2: I don't know just ways to make them appear second rate compared to how we are compared to other people and I think it seems like that that are very damaging to relationships and even thinking of having um, healing, whether it's broken relationships,
1: things like that will stop healing from happening when there are comments that are made. So that is one area that the
2: Bible warns about in our speech. Is to not speak evil of others. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter four, a few verses there. <coughs> Ephesians
1: four, uh, verse.
2: 24, that he put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. There again, it's just speaking that when the new man is evident in our life, one thing that will happen is we'll put away lying. We will begin to speak every man truth with his neighbor. And again, in the context of sound speech and speech to this whole, there is times we need to speak truth to our neighbor even if it may hurt them.
1: But there is a way to do it in love that we can do without offense, you could say.
2: But again, there's a, a responsibility to not just be quiet. I mean, there are times where we do need to talk, where we do need to talk, and we need to say words to each other, and sometimes it may, um, it may hurt, but yet we do need to speak truth with it, every man with his neighbor, for we are members one of another.
1: And then down in verse 29 here in Ephesians, it says, Let
2: no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even
1: as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There again is listing some of the um, attributes of sound speech. Kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, that which is good, to the use of edifying. (coughs) There's a thought of no corrupt communication. Not just a little bit. It says no corrupt
2: communication. And I think many times it's the world and the influences in it that can make our communication become corrupt. There's a verse in Proverbs that says something about Evil communication corrupts good manners and many times when you're around those that have foul language and that are always um, slandering those around them and it's easy to rub off on us before you even realize it that we can start noticing other people's faults as the loudmouth guy on the other crew is talking about them and whatever and it can affect our manners. It says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the
1: use of edifying. And just thinking of that and as we speak, it says that administer minister grace unto the hearers.
2: I think it would be God's will that as we talk to others every time we open a mouth that grace comes out. There is Grace for each other and grace to go through the little differences between us and whatever it may be that could potentially cause um, strife in a relationship, whatever it may be, that any time we open a mouth, that it can edify and minister grace to the hearers those we talk
1: to. <clears throat> and that says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, and I'm just
2: thinking it from my own life, you know. Christ, or God is in heaven and we're on earth, and therefore a word should be few. And here it says to grieve not the Holy Spirit. And just considering our words, this is
1: the Holy Spirit grieved
2: by my words, by the things that I say to others, by how I talk about other people, by what I do say, by what I don't say, and should.
1: Because, again, we will give an account for every word.
2: I'm just saying, we don't want to have to give an account with grief or with shame in that day. And yeah, it would be God's will that we could minister grace to the hearers. And people come away from talking with us. Even if it's talking about a grouchy neighbor, they come away feeling blessed. If we've hopefully ministered grace to them, and that's grace is just goodwill, loving kindness, favor, and sweetness.
1: And I think that is God's will that we would minister that to each one we come in contact with. Here in um verse thirty one it talks about
2: little bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking to put away from you with all malice. And just remembering in our memory verses um, chapter two of first Peter it says, Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings we looking up what that malice is, and it's just simply ill will or a desire to injure. And how many times we say things in ways where we're not, we might just beat up on someone, but yet we want to say things to let them know that our feelings got hurt or that we were offended, so we say something in a way just to maybe hurt them a little bit, I mean, not that we would just outright rail along them or something,
1: but that is um, one of the things listed as something that should be put away. All desire
2: to injure with our words, it would be only a desire to bless and to minister grace. And then also the bitterness that it talks about is just that of resentment towards others. And that's considering my life, for we, am I letting Resentment towards others affect the way I talk to that person, or the way I talk to others about that
1: person. Are there resentments that are in there, which is where the bitterness that it talks about. Well, there's other things here that it talks about: wrath, venting our frustration, and some of those, and others. Yeah, considering how is my speech, how how am I doing in that? I like the, the other lists here, kind, tenderhearted, forgiving? It says even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you, nothing. Do my conversation with
2: others reflect the fact that I have been forgiven? And that I am forgiving others as Christ forgave me? Or do they maybe have the sense that maybe I haven't fully forgiven them based on how I came across in my conversation?
1: Are we ministering grace to others? <coughs> Isaiah had a vision of the Lord sitting
2: upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And there were the seraphims there. They had each of them six wings, and they were flying around, crying one to another, Holy, 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 as so the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and the post of the door moved, and the house is filled with smoke. And you get a picture of a very holy and a pure place. And the first thing that Isaiah thought of when he saw all that holiness and the glory around God's throne, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. The first thing he thought about was the things he had said that day, and the things that he had said in the week before or whatever. And when he sees God's holiness, that, that is one of his first awarenesses. And I think sometimes it does us good to look at God's holiness as we consider our own words and the way we talk and the way we speak. That we compare it to Christ's holiness. And I think if we have a proper fear of God and a proper view of His holiness, that it helps us to. Um, And it helps us to portray Christ better in the way we talk,
1: and the way we speak to others. Sometimes I think it would help if, at least for me, if I did that more often, is
2: reflecting on God's holiness and how that should affect the way I talk to others
1: and how it should affect the way I uh, talk about others. And there's just be more of Christ in his example. I'd like to read some in First Peter. I see some of our memory verses there. First <clears throat> Peter chapter two verse 21 it says, For even hereunto were ye
2: called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And just thinking of Christ's example in that, I don't think our, um, um, how do you say, the, the obstacles we have to come, that we have to get over when someone maybe did something that's a little bit hard for us to forgive them for, I don't think it's anything compared to what Christ suffered. And through it all, he was reviled, and he reviled not again. suffered, he threatened not. And it says there was no guile found in his mouth.
1: There was no, no words that he spoke that were not wholesome, that were not sound words.
2: So if we wonder how we are measuring up, we need to look to Christ as our example. as we see how he responds to people. We can look at his glory, and then we can look at our words, and we can look at his um example, and then we can look at our words and how does how does it match up to Christ
1: and to what he has done for us? I guess my desire is that through all the words that I speak through
2: every time I open my mouth, that I can minister grace to others,
1: that I can, as Christ did, have no, um, no guile, no reviling, regardless of what we're facing, no, no evil speaking of others. I guess that's all I had to share this morning. Just my test or my proverb
2: be that we can all strive together to be more like Jesus in our words and the things we say
1: God bless you with that